In the Buddha's teaching, there's a great vastness of vision. He talked about his experience of the world, talked about 31 different planes of existence, the higher realms and the human realm and the lower realms. He talked of innumerable world systems in which all these planes of existence happen. He talked about our evolution through countless lifetimes in different places, in different realms, in different situations. For most of us, this understanding remains somewhat theoretical. You know, we can hear this and either kind of intuit uh, some sense of it uh, or not, you know, have a skeptical (coughs) disbelief. I'll just share one one little story. Uh, My first teacher, Manindraji, used to love to talk about the deva realms. That is the, the heavenly realms with beings of light and he would go on and on in these wonderful descriptions, but he knew he was talking to a bunch of Westerners who you know, didn't, didn't necessarily buy into it all. But he would go on and then he would say, you don't have to believe any of this. It's true, but you don't have to believe it. <laughs> so, <laughs> But I think more relevant to our lives and to our path is a different understanding of the vastness of this journey. Not so much in terms of the cosmology, but in terms of understanding the very nature of our minds, of consciousness, and of how we create suffering through ignorance, both for ourselves and for other people, and how we can actually be free, not theoretically, not abstractly, but how we can actually free our minds from suffering, moment to moment. In different spiritual traditions, there's a vast array of teachings. And even within Buddhism, you find many different kinds of teachings. But they all converge, at least within Buddhism, in one understanding of what liberates the mind. And the Buddha expressed it very often in the texts. He said, the supreme state of sublime peace has been discovered by the Tathagata, which is the word he used to describe himself. The supreme state of sublime peace has been discovered by the Tathagata, (coughs) namely, Liberation through non-clinging. And in other places he said, this is the deathless, namely liberation through non-clinging. It's a very clear statement. The nature of freedom. Centuries later, as the teachings got passed on from master to disciple, there was a great Indian Buddhist adept, his name was Talopa, 
and his most famous student had been a pundit at one of the great Buddhist universities and finally gave up all his study and went to uh, practice with this great sage. His name was, the, the pundit's name was Naropa. And at one point, Talopa said to his student Naropa, you are not fettered, you are not bound by appearances, by experience. You are fettered by attachments, so cut your attachments. It's the same message, liberation through non-clinging. I think what's important for us, what's really essential for us, is to realize that this is not a description of some far-off state. And that maybe if we're lucky and we practice for 30 years or 40 years, maybe we'll get to this place of non-clinging. It's important to realize that this is our practice now. This is what we're practicing. All the traditions, all the techniques, all the methods, all the metaphysics serve this end. They serve the end of the mind of no clinging, the mind of no attachment. Our experience keeps changing. You know, our experience of our mind and our body and our lives and retreat. It's a flow of changing experience and yet the message of liberation is the same. Letting go of grasping, letting go of attachment. So there's a very important point here which is very hard to internalize. But if we can, it will make your meditative career infinitely happier. And that is, we are not practicing in order to have some better experience. That's not the point of the practice. However wonderful the experience may be, or we imagine it may be, what we're practicing is the mind of no clinging, the mind of no attachment. But it's very hard to remember that. Because we keep practicing for the next experience. So how can we accomplish what the Buddha called the heart's release? the heart's release from grasping, the heart's release from attachment, how can we accomplish this and practice it and be with it? One way that leads us to this place of non-clinging is through a very clear and experiential understanding of impermanence. Now, what's so strange about this is that we all know that things change. This is not some deep esoteric mystery. We know that things are impermanent. We know that things change, but we know it conceptually. And it's not so often that we are paying attention in the moment to the changing nature so that we're seeing it, we're living it, we're feeling it, we're grokking it. You know, in some very deep way. 
when we do pay attention, it's clear that impermanence is happening on every possible level that we could imagine. You know, we're seeing light from the stars of galaxies that are no longer there. The stars have died and the light's still traveling. We see impermanence in the cycle of birth and death. We see impermanence in the change of seasons. We see impermanence in the changing experience of our lives, in the highs and lows of the retreat. How many ups and downs have you had since you've been here? Well, it's amazing to consider. You know, think of the most wonderful moment you've had, you know, that one moment where the mind was concentrated and still. And, and then think of the worst moment. Now you're depressed and unhappy and full of pain. Where are those moments now? Where are those experiences now? Just all part of this passing show, this passing flow. And as our meditation and concentration gets increasingly refined, we begin to experience impermanence on a very momentary level. We see the arising and passing of phenomena really on a microscopic level, moment after moment after moment. Sometimes it's in very ordinary situations that this insight into impermanence kind of strikes us in a new way. A couple of years ago, I was on retreat here, and I was just walking down to the pond, you know, taking a walk and walking mindfully, as mindfully as I could. And by the time I got to the pond, I just started reflecting about my experience of the steps when I just left the building. And I really, that experience of the steps right here were completely gone. And the steps halfway to the pond were completely gone. And the sensations of the step just before reaching the pond were completely gone. It's like our experience is constant. It's like water over the edge of a waterfall. It's continually falling away, falling away, falling away. And new ones arising. And there is no permanence to be found when we are really paying attention. When we're living in this truth, not conceptually, but we are really seeing it moment to moment, how things are disappearing and re-arising and disappearing. When we, in that awareness, notice the quality of your mind. Because when we are really seeing it, it is impossible to be holding on. It's impossible to be grasping. We see nothing is lasting long enough to grasp. And so we can have a very immediate experience, a very full experience, even if it's just for a moment, of the heart released, the heart free of attachment, free of grasping, through this very accessible insight into the impermanence of things. But one of the strongest aspects of our delusion, kind of the great cloud of delusion that we live in, is that even though we know personally, 
for ourselves that all our past experience is very dreamlike. You know, where is it now? Where are all the experiences of yesterday, the day before, or last week, or last year? Everything that seems so intense in the moment just dissolves into this dreamlike nature as it passes away. So even though we know this from looking back in our own lives, at our own past experience, by some great cloud of delusion, as we look ahead, as we anticipate new experiences to come, somehow we have the sense, well, the next hit of experience is going to do it. This is the one I'm waiting for. You know, the next vacation or the next relationship or the next job or the next meal or the next breath. You know, it's always as if it's just ahead of us, this final coming to peace. So we have to awaken, really, to our own wisdom about our own experience. It's not a belief. It's really to look for ourselves, but to look attentively and carefully. Well, what is the nature of our lives? What is the nature of the experiences that keep arising and passing away? Is there anything that we've experienced so far that has the capacity, that had the capacity to fulfill our deepest longings? No. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. In some way, we all know deeply that this changing flow of experience in in itself is not going to satisfy it, because it hasn't, and it won't, because of its impermanent nature. The Buddha made a very startling statement about all this, and one that... I mean, one might read and just pass over, but when we think about it, it's, to me it's a very amazing statement. He said that it's better to live for a single day seeing the arising and passing nature of phenomena, you know, to see it deeply on a momentary level. Better to live a single day to see this momentary nature of phenomena than to live a hundred years without seeing it. That's quite a statement about what's of value in life. You know, it's not one's usual sense of what's important, of what's most important. We're so busy thinking that accumulating all kinds of experiences are what's really of value. And here the Buddha is saying, you could live a hundred years accumulating experiences, and to live a single day to see this momentary nature would be more valuable. Why? Because it's in the seeing of that that we get a glimpse, we get a taste of the possibility of freedom, of the mind of not clinging, of not grasping, of not being attached. So in our practice, in our meditation practice here and in our life, but particularly here, because there's a good opportunity for this, not only do we want to pay attention to what it is that's arising moment after moment, 
we also want to pay attention to what happens to each arising object. So there's a breath, what happens to it? There's a sound, we're mindful of it, what happens to it? There's a thought, there's a sensation, there's an emotion, whatever it is. Because in attending not only to what it is that's arising, but also to the behavior of that experience, to what happens to it, we will be tuning in directly and precisely and carefully, and we will see that everything is just passing away over and over and over again. Now, it's really the great gift of the practice is that this can be seen in any, every moment at any sense store. It doesn't matter what our experience is. We're with a sound, we're with a breath, we're with a sensation, we're with a mind object. Any experience at any sense store is revealing this truth of impermanence. We simply need to pay attention. And we can look even more carefully because each of these objects in themselves, each one is not a single solid object. For example, the breath. One in-breath is not a single thing. One in-breath is a flow of many, many, many sensations. One rising movement, one movement in walking, it's not one thing. And we listen to the sound of a bell. Many, many, many moments arising and passing within that one sound. So if we are sincerely interested in liberation, And liberation, again, doesn't mean some far-off abstract thing. It means freeing ourselves from suffering. If we have this motivation, this interest, the Buddha gave some very explicit guidance about how to pay attention to that aspect which most conditions our clinging, to that aspect which most conditions our reactivity, and Sharon spoke about this last night, you know, and she did a very condensed version of dependent origination, you know, how things are arising, they're either pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, and how when we're not mindful, the condition, the habit, we get attached to what's pleasant, we push away what's unpleasant, we space out what's neutral. So the Buddha gave very specific instruction here. I'd like to read from his teaching. Before I do, there's a way to listen. Now we can listen and think as kind of, that's interesting Buddhist philosophy. You know, you think about it, yeah, it's right, it's not right, whatever. Or you could imagine that it's actually the Buddha speaking to us. Because as far as we know, these are the words he spoke to the people who were with him. And so we listen in a whole different way. So I invite you. Whatever feelings arise, whether pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, 
abide contemplating impermanence in those feelings. Contemplate the fading away, the ending of those feelings. Contemplate relinquishment, letting go. Contemplating thus, we do not cling to anything in the world. Here's an interesting line. When we don't cling, there is no agitation. And when not agitated, we personally attain Nibbāna. So we want to apply this. This is, this is the Buddha's instruction for us. We abide contemplating the impermanence of all of these feelings, the pleasant ones, the unpleasant ones, the neutral. And we really look to see, we investigate. This is our meditation practice. Yes, it's all changing. And when we see it's changing, we don't cling. And when we don't cling, there is no agitation in the mind. And when there's no agitation in the mind, the mind is at peace. But in case we still don't get it, I mean, even though it's really clear, and the Buddha's pointing it out, you know, with great simplicity, this is not complicated, although it's not easy to do, as we know, but it's not complicated. But just to make sure that we get it, you know, the Buddha went on to point out those arenas, those areas where we habitually do cling. In case we're not aware where our attachments are, you know, where we're holding on, where we're grasping. He's helping us out here a bit. The first major area of attachment, which has been talked about already, and this is to reiterate a bit, major area of attachment or clinging is attachment to sense pleasures to pleasant sense experience. We like it when it's pleasant. Pleasant sights and pleasant sounds and pleasant body sensations and pleasant thoughts and pleasant emotions. You know how nice it is just to sit and be lost in reverie for an hour. It's nice. We have kind of pleasant daydreams. and Nice way to spend an hour. You, know, you get up and the body hasn't hurt much and it went fast. <laughs> But when we investigate our attachment, you know, our desire, our wanting, these pleasant experiences, it begins to reveal a lot about the power and the nature and the experience of addiction. Because in a very fundamental way, we are addicted to pleasant experience. And the strength of our addictions vary, you know, within each one of us for different things. we really begin to understand and to see and to explore how our minds become enchanted, how they become fascinated, how they become stuck on different pleasing objects. I'll just tell a couple of stories. One, is, one was of the Dalai Lama when he was teaching in L.A. and he was being driven to the conference hall where he was lecturing and every day they drove by on a street where they had all these stores selling you know, the latest technological toys. You know, and the Dalai Lama has this great interest in that stuff. And so he'd drive by every day. The last day of the conference, he was giving his talk and he said, 
you know, I've been driving by each day and I noticed in my mind that by the end of the week I wanted things that I didn't even know what they were. <laughs> this is the Dalai Lama, you know. So, <laughs> and just somebody, one, one, a yogi in one of the groups, I, I hope they don't mind my telling the story, but since you shared it in a group, I'll assume it's in the public domain. Uh, but it was just to the same point. Uh, somebody who's here as an LTY, a long-term yogi, you know, kind of so settling in for you know, long extended practice, and they set up their room and you know, got it all set, and they had all kinds of cartons to put their stuff in, kind of made a nice, neat room. Uh, you know, and got kind of very attached to the cartons, you know, to make the shelves. And then she was saying that just before the course started, or at the beginning of the course, she was in the room where, you know, they keep the fruit and stuff and saw all these empty cartons. And she saw her mind just wanting those cartons, even though she had nothing left to put in them. <laughs> and it was just, it's the same story. It's the Dalai Lama story. You know, of just the mind, the mind wanting, even when we don't know what it is. It's very insightful in our practice to be observing how that wanting mind is arising, how it functions. Now we're going along, everything is smooth, we're on our breath, and sometimes it feels to me like we're just kind of on the, the highway, and then all of a sudden there's a big billboard. Oh, the Barry Amusement Park. <laughs> You know, whatever our own particular amusement park is, we all have our own. Yeah, we just get off the exit. And we spend 15 minutes in the amusement park, and then we remember, oh yeah, I'm just sitting here. <laughs> and we get back on the highway. But what happens as our attention gets stronger, as our mindfulness gets stronger, is we see this billboard, an amusement park, and we still get off the exit, but we realize what we've done right away. And so instead of spending 15 minutes amusing ourselves, we just get off the exit and back on the highway right away. And when our attention is really clear, you know, we're going along the highway with our breath, with our sensations, just everything's fine. We see this big billboard, a desire of some kind or other. We see the billboard, we say, ah, just desire, just the wanting mind. We don't even get off the highway. At that point, it's lost its power. We freed ourselves from that energy, that force of addiction. And it's very freeing. It's the heart released from clinging, the heart released from grasping. And it all comes about through awareness. It's not some magic. We just have to see what's going on. And in the seeing of it, we can become free. The mind is so quick and so subtle. It's almost as if this subliminal wanting, you know, it's just, well, I was on retreat, you know, this happens many, many times, it's this just one particular example that stood out, but it's a common experience. I was doing a self-retreat in my house, you know, and I had finished a sitting and I was coming downstairs, uh, reasonably mindfully, I thought, uh, to do some walking meditation, and just halfway down the stairs, there was the barest flicker of a thought. 
almost a subliminal thought. Cup of tea. <laughs> and that was it. That, I got to the bottom of the stairs, turned right into the kitchen. <laughs> and I was just amazed watching myself do this because I thought, boy, if that fragment of a thought could actually direct my life. <laughs> what about real thoughts? <laughs> it's very tricky because the mind and the thought process is so quick and this desire, this wanting mind. So it's helpful. The energy that's helpful for understanding this and exploring it is one of interest. You know, it's one of exploration. Not, it's not about judging oneself for having it, because this is, the, this is the conditioning. But can we really be watching our own minds? Because it is our lives. Now, this is not a matter of theory. This is about how we're living. You know, and whether we're simply slaves to the wanting mind, or we can begin to see it. Something that I have found tremendously helpful as an application of this in my life is to pay attention to those times when I'm suffering in one way or another. And when I am paying attention, almost always I can trace that suffering back to some kind of wanting. It's amazing to see how wanting is at the root of so much suffering, and then to take it one further essential, one essential step further, and this is a big one, and would be one well worth exploring, to see that wanting is a choice. When we're aware of it, we have the choice to either go on wanting and at least in some situations, go on suffering, or not, to let go of the wanting, to experience the kind of relief. I don't have to want that particular thing. Now, it's really important here to understand that this doesn't mean, it's kind of a double negative here, it doesn't mean that we don't act in the world. You know, we act and we can open to the pleasant things that come in our life with a fullness of experience. It's not pulling away. But it's really watching that energy of grasping at what's pleasant. The energy of clinging, because that's where the suffering is. And it's not only to pleasant sense experience. On a more subtle level... And this is, this is an occupational hazard of meditating. We get attached to pleasant meditative experience, which become much more enjoyable even than the, the worldly pleasures because the energy can get so subtle and so refined and the quality of the mind you know, can get so peaceful and calm and tranquil and still. It's really a kind of happiness that we rarely enjoy in our lives. So as this happens, as it sometimes does, and with increasing practice it comes more often, 
very easy for the mind to latch on to that and to think, yes, I'm practicing for that. It's just another kind of wanting, another kind of grasping. We really need to understand that we are not practicing for some pleasant experience. And this goes against all of our conditioning. It doesn't matter to what we are not clinging. And if we get this deeply, we give up a lot of struggle. Because then we're not practicing hoping for this experience rather than that experience. We realize that what we're practicing is not clinging to whatever's arising in the moment. Restlessness, don't cling to it. Bliss, don't cling to it. The breath, don't cling to it. A sound, whatever. But do you see how simple it can become? And freeing the mind from expectation, from this wanting, from this grasping at experience. So this is the first arena of clinging that the Buddha talked about, pleasant experience. The second arena of attachment, huge, and the cause of tremendous suffering in the world, is attachment to views and opinions. You know, we have a lot of views and opinions about almost everything, and we get very invested in our point of view. And then we start fighting with people who have different points of view. Now, how, how much killing has happened because of different religious beliefs? People torturing each other. I mean, from a certain perspective, it's insanity. And yet, the attachment to a view or opinion can get so strong... And it creates this amazing separation and becomes the cause of so much conflict. Not only attachment to kind of just beliefs, even when we have some genuine knowledge, some genuine understanding, we want to be careful that we don't get attached to that. You know, we don't take a certain pride in our own, in our own wisdom, in our own knowledge. Oh, I'm really selfless. <laughs> it really becomes the basis for so much sectarianism. You know, because people do have from many different sides, a genuine wisdom and a genuine realization, but as soon as we add the attachment to it, so that's the beginning of all the sectarian conflicts that happen. It was a 17th century Japanese Zen master, his name was Bankai. He had a wonderful uh, saying in this regard, He said, don't side with yourself. (laughs) 
And just what it would be like to go through one's day or one's life remembering that. It would be very different, you know, because we're so habituated to side with ourselves, our own point of view, and to be attached to it. So there's attachment to sense pleasures, attachments to views and opinions. The other attachment the Buddha spoke of really is at the core. This is the deepest, the most essential attachment we have, and the one that is at the root of all the suffering for ourselves and other people. It's the hardest one to understand. And this is the great attachment we have to the idea of self. This is so strongly conditioned in us, this belief that there is some I, some self inside, to whom everything is happening. It's as if all experience funnels back to this sense of self. And so much of the Buddhist teachings was were about awakening to the illusion of self, that it's a mental construct, and it has its uses, but it is only a construct. It doesn't point to anything that's real. So I want to mention briefly just one image which may give you some sense of what he means here by saying self is a concept. And it's a classical image from the Buddhist texts and so it uses an image from those times, uh, of a chariot. When somebody was asking about the self, this teacher said, well, when you look at a chariot, would you say that the wheels are the chariot? No. Would you say the axle is the chariot? No. Would you say that... I don't know all the parts of chariots, so... (laughs) (laughs) Would you say that uh, the steering wheel is... (laughs) (laughs) is the chariot no (laughs) that what we call chariot chariot is a designation for a relationship of certain parts you put certain parts together in a certain way and they function together in a certain way and so we create a concept a designation for this relationship of certain parts. But there's no thing in itself which is the chariot. And the Buddha was pointing out that this mind-body process is the same thing. There's a relationship of elements, physical elements and mental elements, and they're in a relationship to each other, and it gives the appearance of a self. We look in the mirror in the morning, we get up, we look in the mirror, yep, that's me. But that's a very superficial perception. And a major part of the investigation in meditation is to go beyond this concept, oh, there's a self, and really look to see, well, what is happening in our experience? What are the elements? And as we begin to pay attention, we see, yeah, there are a lot of different things going on. You know, there's different physical sensations and thoughts and emotions. And each one of these is changing every moment. Nothing lasts long enough to be called self. Self is really the designation for the appearance 
that arises of the relationship of all these different parts. But even when we have some sense of this, even conceptually we, we may get a glimpse, there still can be a felt sense of self. You know, we can hear all this, yeah, we're just a chariot, and chariot doesn't really exist, but it feels like we do. So the question then is, what creates this felt sense of self? Why is it so strong? Again, it's all a question of looking, of investigating, of seeing for ourselves. We see that the sense of self arises in any moment when we are identifying with that moment's experience. The experience is just what it is. But then we add this extra element of identification with it. We're taking these things to be self. And it's that extra mental activity of identification with what's going on. That's what creates the sense of self in any moment. So what do we identify with? Almost everything. We identify with the body. Big attachment. You know, we take these bodies to be who we are. Yeah, this is me. But it's only because we have not looked carefully at the nature of the body. Some friends of mine have undergone laparoscopic surgery for fibroid tumors. And it's, it's an amazing procedure. You know, they go in very small incision, and they do it by video. You know, there's a camera, a miniaturized camera. And the surgeon is actually watching the TV screen, you know, as the knife is in there, you know, cutting away the tumor. Well, as a reward for the surgery, you go home with a video. <laughs> and basically, it's a video of the insides, you know. And it's amazing. I mean, my friends didn't want to watch it, having gone through the surgery, but I was really interested. <laughs> Because you see everything, you kind of see the intestine, and you see the organs, and you see the blood. and That doesn't look like me. <laughs> you know, would we say, yes, the liver is me. I'm the liver. I'm the intestine. No. But somehow it's all nicely packaged in skin, and all of a sudden, yes, that's me. <laughs> We're not looking deeply enough. We're getting deceived by an appearance. And this deception has tremendous consequence, not just a minor illusion in our lives. Because we're deceived, because we're not really looking at the real nature of what this body is, and because we do take it to be self, we do identify with it, there is so much attachment to it, that's precisely where our fear of death comes from. You know, and our fear of loss. Because what is it that dies? You know, it's the body that dies. If we were not identified with the body, it would be no problem at all. One of my favorite dying stories is 
story of His Holiness Karmapa, the last one, the 16th. He's a great Tibetan master who has since been reborn and refound. But last time around, as he was dying and everybody was fussing around him, he turned to them and he said, don't worry, nothing happens. That's an amazing understanding, an amazing statement. And it comes from that place of realizing it's not the body. The body is just these physical elements doing their thing, getting older and dying. No problem if we're not identified with it. And how do we not identify with it? See it in its true nature, instead of just kind of this illusion of an appearance of it. We create a sense of self when we identify with thoughts. When we're attached to the body, we create a sense of self. When we identify with thoughts, we create this felt sense of self. Now, all these stories that come in our mind, of all kinds, I mean, you've been sitting here for days now, observing this endless procession of different thoughts and how much of the time we are caught up in them. We're lost in them. We are identified with them. Every time we're lost in a thought, there is that sense of I'm thinking. Now there's that recreation of the sense of self through being lost in thought. And there are thoughts about everything. Thoughts about what kind of yogis we are. We're good yogis. We're bad yogis. Thoughts about our lives, our relationships, our work. Thoughts about the past. Thoughts about the future. One of the most freeing understandings that came in my practice was the realization, and again, this is through the clear seeing of it, not not conceptually, that our whole experience of past and our entire experience of future happens as a thought in the moment. How else do you experience it? You're sitting here, we're sitting here. A thought comes of memories, of recollections, of anticipations, of plans. We create this whole big reality in our minds of past with all regrets or worries or delight, whatever it is, and all this reality of the future. But what is really happening? All that's happening is that there's a thought in the moment. When we see that our experience of past and future, I'm not talking about some metaphysical question of whether past and future are really out there. I'm talking about how we experience it. How we experience it is always as a thought or an image in the present moment. Now the thought, the concepts past and future are huge. And we carry them like this burden through our lives When we see, it's just a thought. The thought is very light. There's nothing much there. It's like we relieve ourselves of this huge, huge burden. So I would invite you to really pay attention tonight and the rest of the retreat. Pay attention to all those times when the mind is getting lost in a thought, creating a sense of self through past and future, And then, if you can, remember, this is just a thought. 
see the transparency, see the lightness, see the emptiness of it. How much of a sense of self do we create in with our judging mind? Uh, for some reason, I don't know whether it's just our culture or it's universal, but certainly among us, the judging mind is rampant. We have judgments about everyone and everything. And what are they? They're just thoughts. We don't have to believe them. We don't have to invest in them. little meditative technique if you're being plagued with judging mind. Just tag on to the end of every judgment. The sky is blue. That person's a jerk. The sky is blue. <laughs> because when we say the sky is blue, we see that that's just, a, that's just words in the mind. There's no emotional investment. The judgment as a thought is exactly the same. It has no power except the power we give it. And this is true of all thoughts. We need to see clearly and understand the nature of thought because it's running rampant in our lives. It's like thoughts have become the dictators of our lives. And we're the slaves just acting out. A cup of tea? <laughs> <laughs> you know. I, and it's happening all day long in so many ways. And what's so amazing, and really to see this, you know, there's a Tibetan word uh, in a lot of the Tibetan texts, which is emaho. And what emaho means is how amazing. <laughs> so often in the text, they'll give the teachings about the nature of mind, the thought, and they'll just say emaho. Well, it really is amazing. And you can notice the difference in your experience. And, and please do. Notice the difference in your experience when you are lost in some thought of past or future or judgment or whatever it is, desire. Notice the difference when you're lost in a thought in that sense of self that comes in that. The difference between that and that moment when you become aware that you're thinking. It's like two different worlds. It's like stepping out of a cloud of delusion. It's like waking up from sleep. It's like coming out of a movie theater, remembering that it was just a movie that you were watching, instead of being lost in the story. To see that thoughts in themselves are completely empty of substance, Regardless of the content, they have no power whatsoever except what we are choosing to give them in that moment. This is tremendously liberating. We do not have to be tormented by our thoughts. If we can be aware and mindful that we're thinking, we become aware of their nature. There was a great Korean Zen master of the 11th or 12th century. He said, don't be afraid of your thoughts. Only take care lest your awareness of them is tardy. So that's really what we're practicing. We're not practicing to try to stop thinking necessarily. 
We want to not be tardy in our awareness of them, so we're not creating a sense of self by getting lost in them and identifying with them. We create this sense of this felt sense of I, of self, when we are identified with the body and we're attached to it, when we're identified and lost in thought. Very strong sense of self when we get lost in and identified with our various emotions. And in some way, this is very difficult because emotions are what we most personalize. And even when we see that thoughts are coming and going and impermanent, even though we get lost a lot, we kind of get a sense of their emptiness. When strong emotions come, habitual react. yes, this is really me. I'm the one who's angry. I'm the one who's sad. I'm the one who's happy. I'm the one who's loving, whatever. But the emotions, like everything else, are experiences arising out of certain conditions. They don't belong to anyone. They're not I, they're not mine, they're not self. But it's very interesting to watch what we do with emotions, because not only do we identify with them, yes, I'm angry, I'm happy, I'm afraid, we then construct even further, we, we, build, a, we build like a skyscraper of self, on top of this poor little emotion. Not only now am I angry, but now I'm an angry person. You know, and so we just solidified even more. I'm this kind of person, I'm that kind of person. It's building this skyscraper of self on top of a momentary arising experience. Can we drop all that? Can we drop back into the simplicity of simply being aware can we be with an emotion in the same way that we were with a sound? That would be interesting. You know, that same quality, just sitting, the mind is open, spacious, clear, empty, sound arises and passes, no problem. Even when it's an unpleasant sound. Just comes and goes. Could we stay as open, as clear, when sadness arises, when fear arises, when happiness arises, when... Rage arises. Let it wash through this empty openness of the mind, the empty sky of the mind. Very liberating. There's a little fragment of a poem from Rumi. It said, What I want is to leap out of this personality. I've lived too long where I can be reached. <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice just to, to take the I out of this personality and just, ah, relief to not identify with it. It's just conditioned stuff. We don't have to create that felt sense of self. Okay, the most subtle place we identify with is the body, thoughts, emotions. The most subtle place we identify with is with awareness itself. Because even as we're aware in knowing all of these different experiences and phenomena and maybe get a sense of their impermanence and that they're not I, not self, 
still we can rest in that sense, well, I'm the observer of it all. I'm the witness. I'm the one who's knowing. And here's where the Buddha is so radical in his understanding. Because he pointed out that awareness itself, consciousness itself, is not I. One way to get a handle on this, and this, this takes a real investigation into the nature of mind, but one way that you might explore, which I found very helpful, is by relanguaging how I was seeing experience. And I relanguaged it in the passive voice. And so, for example, a sound being known. Instead of languaging it in the mind, even pre-verbally, I'm knowing a sound or I'm knowing the breath. A sound being known. The breath being known. And to do this in the very moment of that experience, or in movement when you're walking, the very interesting to do. Just with each step, it's just a succession of sensations being known. That's all. And they're being known spontaneously. There's nothing you need to do for that knowing to arise. They're just being known because the nature of the mind is awareness. And then you could hold one great question in your mind. Okay, it's a sound being known, it's a breath being known, it's an emotion being known, it's movement being known. Known by what? This is the great mystery. Known by what? What is the nature of awareness? Because when you look for it, there's nothing to find. And yet this knowing, this cognizing is happening spontaneously, effortlessly, all the time. So we can be right there in this mystery, noticing how this is happening moment to moment. This is not esoteric. It is our every moment, every day experience of what's happening. Liberation through non-clinging. Not clinging to sense pleasures, either worldly ones or meditative ones. Not clinging to our views and opinions. Not clinging to the sense of self. Through identifying with the body, with thoughts, with emotions, with awareness. The Buddha summed all of this up summed up all of his teachings in one very short phrase. He said, nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. Whoever has heard this has heard all the teachings. Whoever practices this has practiced all the teachings. And whoever realizes this has realized all the teachings. For all 45 years, you know, if it's going around and teaching out of compassion, this is what it all comes down to. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. Can we hold this? Can we hold this understanding 
as we practice. Everything we do, you know, the form of us sitting and walking and the primary object and the mental noting and the choiceless awareness and everything we've talked about is to this end. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. Doing this moment to moment is the practice of freedom. Sit for a few moments. So just a few suggestions as you get up and begin the walking. Do it quite slowly and mindfully and simply pay attention to the changing nature, to that flow, to that current of experience. The different sensations in the body as you move and the sights and the sounds and the thoughts. Really notice moment after moment how things keep falling away and new experiences arising. So give your attention to that. And then when you start the walking, begin to play a little bit without making it a big project, but just out of interest. Just as you're walking, just the sensation of the movement being known, the stepping being known, the placing being known, moment after moment. Notice how things are being known spontaneously, effortlessly. So you stay right in the mystery of the nature of awareness. I'd also like to encourage you to uh, come to the next sitting. It's a very nice one. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.